guys, so please give a warm welcome to Pastor Marcus. Amen. How many of you guys have seen me before? Okay, so a good number of you guys have seen me at least. Uh, my name is Marcus. I am, yes, the executive director of Creativity. Um, is there a place where I can sit this? Or do I just sit on the floor. It's fine. And uh, no, it's fine. You, you, is that like the, what is that called? The Cajon. Oh, okay. Ooh, no, that's perfect. Okay, cool. I hear myself like in my things. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa. I hear myself in the background. But yes, I am the pastor at the Itaewon campus at New Philly. And if you've never visited Itaewon, if you've never visited our Itaewon campus, skip Hillside one Sunday. And come to Itaewon. You will have a great time. We are a awesome bunch and we are very, very multicultural. Not saying the hillside isn't, but we are. And if you don't attend New Philly, I hope that you would just come check us out either way. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I, I'm always excited to preach at Emmaus because I at one time was an exchange student. I was a student here in Korea. I'm not going to get into my story tonight, but if you want to talk about it, you can just ask me later. I came to Korea from North Carolina. If you're wondering how I came here, it, in it involved a girl, okay? It involved a girl. I thought that she was the one, and, you know, I watched too many Korean dramas, and so I jumped on an airplane. I flew here. Um, I am single, so that did not work out. Uh, but I'm so excited every time. This is where my life changed. Emmaus was where my life was transformed. And uh, I just want to say something. As uh, Michelle was, was leading prayer, she was quoting uh, Psalm 84. And it says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, everything in your place. The word blessed. And so happy are you when you God. How many of you guys have been happy in the house of God. Is it coming in and out? Do I need to bring my hand up? Oh, yeah, because you need to record it, right? Okay, all right, cool, sorry. And so it's like there's this understanding in the Bible that you should be happy in God's house. So I want you to turn to your person sitting next to you. I want you to get in their face, get in their grill, get in their personal space and look at them dead in the eyes and say, I'm so happy right now. Come on, come on, get awkward. Get awkward. Get in their face. Okay, all right. So after this, we're going to work on social skills. Because some of you, when you turn, you're like, oh, oh, don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> So I want to talk to you guys out of the book of John, actually, tonight. I want you, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John. We're going to look at John chapter 8. And it's a, it's a word that God's been speaking to me. And it's something that I really feel like he has for you tonight. 
one thing you should know about me is I like to walk around, so I'm not going to stand right here and, and like this is not a lecture. You know, I'm going to I'm going to walk around a bit and uh, try not to mess up the podcast too much because it seems to be making a lot of noise. So before we look at John chapter eight, we're going to look at verses uh, one to eleven. But before we get into that, let me pray for us. Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray for us. <laughs> Father, thank you for Emmaus SNU, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing here in this campus. I thank you for uh, the students whose lives are being transformed here. And I pray that tonight, God, you would do a mighty work in the lives of these students. And God, that as your word goes out, Jesus, you would be exalted. And that, Jesus, we would get a, a fresh revelation of who you are and your heart for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's, there's two kinds of metrics by which we live our lives. There's two ways of thinking, or there's two things that most of us, two things that we pursue or we flee in our lives. And we live our lives around these two things. And the first thing is acceptance. We like it when people accept us. We love it when people accept us. We, we, you know, we have our, we dress a certain way so that people accept us, especially in Korea. Like everyone wears the same thing, you know. If it's in, if it's fashionable, everyone's gonna wear it. Except for Johnny McCartney, cause Johnny McCartney's got his own style. He's got his own style. I love your style. But aside from Johnny McCartney, most people are, that's because it's his Facebook name, right? Aside from him, most people are looking for acceptance. Everything we do is so that someone will approve of us, whether it's our parents, whether it's our friends, whether it's someone else. And the one thing that all of us are pursuing is acceptance. Likewise, the second thing, the one thing that we are all trying to flee away from is rejection. We're trying to get away from rejection and condemnation. Condemnation is is when someone puts a sentence over you that you are unworthy, that you're useless, that they have no need for you, get out of my sight. The term is actually used for a building. Like, not like the buildings at SNU, because the buildings at SNU are all nice and sturdy, but elsewhere. You know, in Korea, they'll build a building in like a day. Like, you walk by a store and it's like, oh, I'm going to go to 7-Eleven. Wait, what? Where did 7-Eleven go? It was here yesterday. It was here 10 minutes ago. Now it's like... You know, it's a makeup store. You know, it's like, how did that happen? It's condemnation actually means that something is unfit. A building is unfit. It can't it's not worthy and it should be destroyed. And most of us are trying to pursue acceptance and and we're fleeing condemnation and rejection. I remember the first time I had an experience of being accepted for who I am. I was five years old. And I was in kindergarten, and, and I had a crush on this girl. Is that early? <laughs> Is that early? Uh, don't judge me. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. Start over. Let's go back. No, no. I was I was five years old. I was in kindergarten. I had this I had this crush on this girl. Her name was Leah Beth. She had two first names, Leah Beth, and she had she had this huge like blonde hair like her hair was bigger than her head and like and she had these blue eyes and she was like you know three foot tall and I was so much taller I was three foot two I was just like a little bit taller than her 
and I remember I walked up to Leah Beth, you know. I was like, hi, Leah Beth. I didn't ask, I didn't ask, do you like me or can I? I said, can I be your boyfriend? I said, can I, can I be your boyfriend? And Leah Beth was like, yeah. And I was like, yes, you know, like five years old, girlfriends, you know. I felt like, I felt like I had triumphed in life. And I remember that that day afterwards, you know, whatever my mom tried to force me to wear, I would like, I was so picky. I was like, no, mom, I don't want to wear those shoes. I want to wear this because I know Leah Beth will like it. Until I found out that Leah Beth had another boyfriend. She's five years old with two boyfriends. Leah Beth needs Emmaus. And from that moment, I felt condemned. I remember I saw her and it was like that same day because kids are so fickle. Like I remember I saw her before lunch and I was like, hey, and she's like, hi. And I think we like held hands for a second. And then I go to lunch and I see her with this kid by the name of Kyle Walker. I remember his full name. Kyle had red hair. He had freckles and he, he had freckles and 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 I see Leah Beth walking down the lunch line holding his hand. I was like, Leah Beth, what, what is this? And she was like, Oh, uh, I like Kyle too. It ruined me. I'm still being healed. You know, that was my first experience with acceptance and rejection. I know many of you guys know what it means to be accepted. You're students, you're college students, right? And so for you to get in to SMU or to get into college, what did you have to do? You had to fill out a college application. Right. And that application, you had to present probably your resume, a, a statement. You had to give them your transcript. You had to show them your grades. Right. And probably when you send in that that statement to SNU, you did not put your your failures on it. Right. Like you didn't send in like I was the last place person in the, the relay race in ninth grade. No, you said I was athletic, you know, because when you send in that that resume, you always want to make things seem bigger than they actually are. And when you sent it in and all of a sudden you hear back, you're, you're in. All of a sudden you feel validated for all the work that you put in, the late nights that you were studying. All of a sudden you realize, oh, this door's open. Someone accepts me. They validate the time that I put into this. Now, you guys got the acceptance letter, but there was probably thousands of people, thousands upon thousands, actually, who got the rejection letter. And they probably, you know, read it and, and they sent in their best resumes. They sent in their best things. They sent it all in. And then when they got it back, they probably felt like everything that they had worked for had not been validated. The funny thing is, is that most of us, we treat our entire lives like a huge college application. We walk around and we're presenting our best. We're presenting our best foot forward. We're wearing our best clothes. We're, we're wanting to act our best. Our friends we want to act a certain way around our friends so that our friends will accept us, that our friends won't reject us. Our family, we want our family to see the best in us. We want everyone around us to see the best in us, even strangers. And each and every one of us, we're walking around actually wanting acceptance and really fearing condemnation. Afraid that someone will look at you and say, you know what, I look at you and I don't want to be around you. I mean, that's 
why we're so afraid to to talk to strangers on the street, right? Because what if they reject me? What if I try to talk to them and they, get out of my face. I don't want to talk to you. Even just now, I had you turn to the person next to you and get in their face and say, you know, I am so happy. But for many of you, it was so uncomfortable. Why? Because even getting in someone's personal space that close, that intimate, we're afraid that that person's going to, you know, spit in our face. We, we're not used to that kind of intimacy. We're not used to that kind of connection. We're, because we have been hardwired to flee from condemnation and to pursue acceptance. You guys are college students, so I'm not going to give you a surface level message tonight. I'm going to go deep. I'm going to talk about some things that will examine your hearts. And so if you'll give space for the Holy Spirit to move tonight, he's going to set you free. He set me free yesterday as I was meditating on it, and I was crying in a cafe. <laughs> and, then pe- and people were walking by. And it- <laughs> the only way I know this is because at some point, I felt the Holy Spirit was like, just open up one eye, Marcus. And I just saw this couple walking by. And I- <laughs> you know what, Jesus? It's all about you. I don't even care. I don't even care. You know, Rona does that all the time. Man. People walk by her and they're like, why is she climbing that tree? What is she doing up there? She's like, Jesus, it's all about you. (laughs) Even in our relationship with God, even in our relationship with God, we're pursuing acceptance. We want God to be pleased with us. We want God to look at us and not see our faults, not see our problems, not see how we make mistakes. And with God, we're, we want acceptance from God and we're really, really afraid of condemnation. In fact, for almost all of us, we've been trained in the church to pursue acceptance from God. Make sure you read your Bible. Make sure you come to Emmaus. Make sure you pray. Make sure you raise your hands. You better sing. Don't go to that bar tonight. Don't go to that club. I heard that because that's... What people told me when I was in Emmaus. Because if you do that, God's not going to be pleased with you. If you live this way, if you make these mistakes, if you sin, even when you're alone, if you look at that, you act that way, God's not going to be pleased. And so for most of us, we're walking around hoping that we'll be accepted by God and by others. You know, I came to the realization recently that I've spent my whole life walking around hoping that people will look at me and think highly of me. Walking around hoping that people will look at how I act, how I perform in school, how I do all these things. They'll look at my credentials. They'll know I'm a pastor. And because they see my title, they'll think better of me. I mean, all of us, we live this kind of way. But Jesus, he desires for us to live a life free from condemnation. So I want you to look at this passage. It's a really famous passage in John chapter 8. And we're going to go through this really famous story. And I think God's going to speak to each one of us so powerfully through it. Let's look at John chapter 8. I'll read it, verses 1 to 11. I want you guys, if you have a Bible or an iPhone with a Bible app, I want you to read along with me. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. They probably sounded more like teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. That's how I always imagined them sounding. It makes the Bible more, so much more exciting for me. You know, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, this is always the Jesus voice. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, they bent down and wrote it on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, okay, I'm not going to do a woman voice. <laughs> no one, Lord. All the sisters, just read that part. She said, okay, that works. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You know, the, the end part of this passage, it always makes me feel uncomfortable reading it. Like Jesus saying, go and sin no more. Every time I read that, I, I always like when I read the Bible and I get to this passage, I always want to skip over that verse, you know, sin no more. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, why you got to say something like that? You know, it's impossible. I mean, I know you guys, you don't skip over Bible passages or anything, right? You're so holy. I know. You know, there's another place in the Bible where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. I read that stuff and I'm like, why you got to say that, Jesus? Like, why do you have to put that out there? Can't you just say something like, go and not sin as much? I'm like, that's attainable. But go and sin no more from now on. And he tells this woman who's been caught in adultery, and, and most scholars believe she was probably a prostitute. I'm like, Jesus, if you tell the prostitute, go and sin no more, what does that mean for me? Every time I read it, I'm just like, even just reading it right now, I felt some sign of me just like, ugh. That there could be this possibility that we could live a life absent of sin. You ever thought about that? You know, sin is, is our propensity to try and control our own lives, do our own thing, act in rebellion towards God, and it leads in death. It brings destruction in our relationships, separation to our relationship with God. It causes everything that we touch to be corrupted. That's sin. Sin's what happens when no one can see. Sin is, is that nature that we do what we don't really want to do, but we end up doing it. And it leads in shame. It causes all these different things. And Jesus says here, go and sin no more. I'm like, Jesus, can you please cut me a break? I at least read this far. I read at least eight chapters of John. Why you got to say, go sin no more? But he says it to this woman. He says it to this woman who has been caught in adultery. Let's go over the story. We're going to go through it again. So Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. He has his quiet time. And I bet Jesus' devotions and his time with, when he reads the Bible and prays is really powerful, right? He doesn't fall asleep like us. But he comes down 
And he goes straight to the synagogue. He, and that's the, that, the synagogue, the temple, that is the epicenter. That is the center of the city. That's where everything happens, right there at the temple. And so Jesus comes down to the mountains. He goes to the temple. He sits down and he begins teaching. Now, the funny thing is, is that if Jesus sat down and taught, that meant that everyone else was standing up. That probably meant that no one fell asleep. I mean, what if we did this differently? What if I sat down and you guys stood up, you know? None of you want to do that. It's like, I'm comfortable. I'm not. You stand. He sits down and he begins teaching. And in the middle of his teaching, which I'm sure was really powerful, blowing their minds, the Pharisees come in and they're dragging this woman. And it's a woman that they've caught in adultery. They caught her in the act of adultery. I'm not going to get into that. You guys are adults. You know what was probably happening. Some of you looking confused. <laughs> okay. Not going to get into it. They caught her in the act of adultery and and the thing is, is that Jesus went there early in the morning, it says. So it probably meant that they caught her in the act the night before and they held her in captivity and then brought her to Jesus early in the morning because they wanted to trap Jesus. And so they bring her to Jesus. They throw her at Jesus's feet and they say, teacher, we have caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, by the law of Moses, it says we should stone her. What do you say? And actually. You know, I've seen different movies about this. You know, if you've seen like Passion of the Christ or Jesus, the film or whatever, it's like very dramatic. Like Jesus is like in the sand and like the woman, like she's just like so beautiful, even though she's like all like in despair. And you end up feeling so bad for the woman. Like and the Pharisees always look so mean, like, oh, you know. But the truth of the matter is, was that this woman had sinned. She had committed a sin and she tried to commit it in secret, but it was being brought to light before everyone. And actually, these these Pharisees, these priests, they had the right to stone her. Leviticus 2010 says that if you catch a man and a woman in adultery, sleeping together outside of marriage, you take them out and you kill them. Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24 says that if you catch a man with another man's wife, in adultery, you kill them. If you catch an unmarried man with an unmarried woman, they say you take them to the city square and you kill them. They had every right to kill them. And you can imagine these guys, they have brought her to the city square and they are looking at her and they are saying, wow, this woman is such a sinner and we want to kill her. And the reason why they want to kill her is because in the Old Testament, even in those passages, it says that you kill them in order to purge the evil from your midst. Because in an Old Testament mindset, I want you guys to stay with me. I know you had class all day. You'll be all right. You're smart. In the Old Testament mindset, in order to get rid of sin, you had to get rid of the sinner. So when it says you purge the evil from your midst, the, the understanding in the Jewish mindset is if I want to get rid of sin, I got to get rid of the person. Imagine every time you made a mistake, someone came in, drug you to the city square and said, we need to kill them. Because they thought an angry thought. Because they're bitter. Because they thought a murderous thought against this person or they've lied or they've stolen 
or they've looked at pornography or they've done this, that, or the other. Imagine if that were you. They had every right to kill her. Every right to take her to the city square and stone her on the spot. And it's funny because in their eyes, they're looking at her and they're saying, she's the sinner and we are righteous. It's so interesting how for so many of us, we have a tendency to compare sins, don't we? You ever looked at someone and you, you, you step outside of Emmaus at, you know, whenever we end and you see that person outside just smoking and drinking and you're thinking, man, if Jesus could touch them. Jesus can heal him. He can heal anyone. Or that friend that you've always been wanting to reach out to. And so many of us, we, we have this tendency to say righteous and unrighteous. And so we look at ourselves and we say, well, you know, hey, I, I may have lied, but at least I, didn't dr- I don't drink. I may be bitter, but hey, at least I, I'm not a liar. I don't steal. Well, hey, I may steal, but at least I don't sleep around. Hey, I sleep around, but at least I don't do drugs. Hey, I do drugs. At least I haven't killed someone. And we have this metric by which we measure our sins. Hey, I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect. I just saw this blog post about embracing your imperfection. I was like, what kind of crazy stuff is this? And she's, and so we have this tendency to say, well, hey, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm Christian. I'm not I'm not as bad as that. I mean, at least I don't do what they do. I know what they do. Mm-hmm, I saw them last week. And so they bring her before Jesus and they are expecting for Jesus to either say stone her or let her go. And they knew that if they did, if Jesus said one or the other, it would trap Jesus. Because if Jesus says stone her, he's stepping outside his authority. That is the Romans authority to kill someone. But if he says, let her go, then he's saying that sin is nothing and, and it doesn't really matter. And so he brings, they bring him before and they say, what do you say? You know, what do you say? Ah. The funny thing is, is that while they were self-righteous, the woman was selfish. You know, she slept with someone outside of marriage. She, she ruined someone's marriage and her own marriage and her children's lives. She never even thought about when she committed this adultery. They say she's a she was a prostitute. She was probably like a professional sinner, if you think about it. And then look, once you look at the passage, it says that Jesus bends down and he starts to write on the ground. What does he write? I don't know. (laughs) He wrote with his finger on the ground. But as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. All of a sudden, they're judging her. They're comparing sins. But Jesus completely levels the playing field. He says, hey, you're so righteous. Well, if you don't, if they all got their baseball, you know, they're in their baseball postures. Hey, but if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, they all put their stones down. And they all realize, wait a minute, I'm not as righteous as I thought. You know, the thing that breaks the tendency of us to judge other people is our revelation of our sin. When you recognize that, hey, I make mistakes just as much as the other person and in the sight of God, it's all sin. It makes it a lot harder to judge someone. 
I know you guys have been praying for more people to come and fill this place. It's going to take for some of you not being so self-righteous. Not judging that person that that you think is too broken for God. Jesus levels the playing field. He says, you know what? You all have sinned. And so they all lead from the oldest to the youngest. And I believe the oldest left first because the oldest, they had a very clear revelation of their sin. And like, I've been around a long time. I've done a whole lot. But the youngest, the youngest, they were the last to leave because a lot of times it's the youngest who believe that we've not done anything wrong. It's the youngest who want to believe that we never made any mistakes. And if we have made mistakes, it's all good. It doesn't matter. It's the youngest who want to stand before God and say, it's all relative. What is sin? What is good? What is bad? And they're the last ones to leave. But Jesus says, it's still sin. You may be standing right now saying, well, what are you getting at? I'm not as bad as someone else. It's still sin. Whatever you commit in a dark place that no one knows about, those things that happen in your heart. Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, that's murder. He said, if you look at someone lustfully, that's adultery. He levels the playing field. And now all of a sudden, it's just Jesus and this, this girl. And this is this is a tense moment because he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so the person who's standing before this woman, he's still there. Jesus didn't leave. He didn't even pick up a stone. Why? Because he lived sinless and, and he was perfect. But he's standing with this woman. Who has a full revelation of her sin. Everything's been brought out. All her mistakes have been brought to the limelight. You ever had your mistakes brought up? You ever had anyone showcase how weak we can be? It's happened to me numerous times. (laughs) You ever had a, a family member or maybe your parents? You ever disappoint your parents? You ever know what that feeling's like? I grew up in a single parent household and my mother, she is... She was the only person there. She took care of me my entire life. And we were in an abusive in an abusive household. So it was just me and my mom. And we both endured a lot of abuse. And I remember when I became 18, I started doing my I was doing my own thing, drinking, doing drugs, all these different things. And I remember when my mother found out that I was doing drugs. Now, I thought my mother was going to stone me. Or run me over something. I thought she was going to do something crazy. And I just remember she just looked at me and she said, you know what, Marcus? I'm so disappointed in you. And that feeling of rejection, that stuck with me. That feeling of condemnation. That feeling like, man, I'm not worthy to be called her son. The funny thing, though, about condemnation, a lot of times we get before God and we feel condemned and we'll repent. God, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And we're carrying all this self-hatred, carrying all this condemnation. But it doesn't prevent us from sinning. I remember I was like, I made all these vows by my mom. I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to smoke drugs. I'm never going to do it again. And then a week later. (sighs) Because you may feel bad. A lot of times we come before God and we feel real bad, but that doesn't get us to the place where we can live free of sin. Keep moving with me right now. What happens is we have this moment of tension. She's she's standing there before Jesus 
And Jesus has said the most clever line, and he's gotten rid of all her accusers. I mean, can you imagine what it would feel like to stand and have everyone who's ever talked smack about you, everyone who's ever judged you, everyone who's ever looked at you as being dirty, being nothing, and in a moment, God completely removes them. And now it's you and him. See, in this moment, she's, you think she'd be happy, but in this moment, she's terrified. He says, woman, where are they? Look, look, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. No one's condemned me. No one's pointing out my mistakes. No one's looking down on me. No one's talking bad about me. But this is the greatest moment of tension because she's right here before the act, the one who has every right to stone her. Jesus could have picked up a stone. He could have picked up a boulder right then. You know he was strong. He was a carpenter. And he could have stoned her right there and had every right to do it because he was the one who had no sin. And a lot of times when we come before God, we feel that tension. Don't you know that tension? Worship's about to start, but instead of worshiping God, you start thinking about that sin you committed. You can't connect with God and you can't connect with people because all that's going through your mind is the mistakes that you made and the things that you've done wrong. And so instead of worshiping, you, you see, you're saying on your breath, God, I repent of this. You're repenting and saying, I'm sorry. She's standing before God. He has every, moment, every right to stone her and he says, you know what? Neither do I. I've removed the people who accuse and condemn you. But check it out. Even though you've sinned, I don't condemn you either. And then he says, go and sin no more. Oh, we're back to that uncomfortable passage. How do you live a life that's free from sin? How do you live a life free from those bondages and those things that are happening in the dark that maybe no one knows about? You live a life free from condemnation. How do you live a life free from sin? You live a life that's completely free from accusation and from condemnation. And this is actually opposite from how we've been taught in the church. You know, we've been taught that if you obey, then God will accept you. If I do the right things, then God will bring me in. If I act the right way, then God will be pleased with me. If I act this way, if I do this thing, if I attend this, if I do this, then God will look at me and he'll be pleased with me. If I stop doing this, if I stop doing that, then God will be pleased with me. But that's not Christianity. See, Christianity starts off with God saying, I'm pleased with you. Grace starts off with Jesus saying, I don't condemn you. You are righteous. Therefore, live like a righteous person. You know, we're taught that if you do the right thing, just do the right thing. Make the right choice. You will be righteous. But Christianity is about getting it through our heads that we are righteous. That we are good, that we're not condemned, that we are pure, that we are holy, that we are loved. 
And when you get it through your head that you are loved, when you get it through your head that you are right, when you get it through your head that God looks at you and he's so pleased with you, you begin to live like that kind of person. You know, Romans 8, 1 to 4, it says, Now there is, there, there is therefore no, now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Turn to John, John chapter 3. I want you to look at this. This is a famous passage. See, what we begin to realize is that getting rid of condemnation, getting rid of judgment and accusation from our Christian walk is actually the very core message of the gospel. And it's the very core thing that most of us miss. John 3.16, we all know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. Jesus did not come for you to stand before him and him to go through the checklist of right and wrong. He didn't come to bring condemnation, but in order that through that the world may, might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Actually, what keeps us in sin is the fear that if we bring it before God, he's going to condemn us. What keeps us in sin, what keeps us failing, what keeps us living that kind of life where we're continually falling short, what keeps us from living that Christian life where we're happy? You know, you're supposed to be happy. The word of God says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. That means every time you come before God, you should have a smile on your face. How many of us come before God with a smile on our face? I know I should come before you today. <laughs> we come before God sad and we leave even more sad. Yet, it says that the joy of the Lord, that's what's supposed to give us strength to live this life. And what happens is that many of us, we don't want to come before God and we we don't want to bring our lives before him and receive his joy, receive his strength, receive his blessing because we're afraid that if we do, he's going to condemn us. But Jesus does not condemn. You know, it's actually I heard this pastor say that if you want to live holy, be happy. He said that happiness precedes holiness. Happiness comes before holiness, that if you want to be holy, be happy in God. I've never seen a happy person in God going around sinning. You never see someone like, man, God is so good. You don't see that. You don't see someone like, man, God, God is, God is so good. And then they're throwing, like, you don't see people saying, I, God is so good, but I don't want to spend time with him. God is so good, but I don't want to live a righteous life. No, because when they recognize that they can come before God and he's so happy to just be with you. He doesn't condemn you. Man, it's like you get the strength you need to do everything he's calling you to do. See, most of us hate the light because we fear condemnation. 
But you know what happens when you come into the light? It says that those who come into the light, they become light. But darkness begets only darkness. You've never seen darkness produce light. In order for you to have light in your life, in order for the burdens, Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. I know he's meaning a different meaning here. But follow me, if you bring your life before Jesus, those burdens you're carrying, he wants to remove them with his light. And it makes everything light. It makes everything easy. I want you to go back to John 8. I want to point out something. So he doesn't condemn her. And he tells her to go and sin no more. And this woman, her life is now transformed. Because she realizes that, man, I can come before Jesus and not be condemned. And, and when you realize that Jesus doesn't condemn you, it doesn't matter if anyone else condemns you. When you realize that Jesus loves you, you know, that's the most simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Most of us don't recognize that Jesus loves us. And therefore, we're searching for someone else to love us. When we realize Jesus loves us, he's pleased with us, we don't. You love me? That's great. That's bonus. Goncha. But we don't, it's not something we have to cling to. I think the saddest part about this, I love this story, but the saddest part about this story is not the woman, it's not Jesus, it's the Pharisees. Because when Jesus levels the playing field and he says, you know what, all of you have sinned. The Pharisees, instead of staying there with the one person who could set them free, they leave. Because their revelation of their sin was greater than their revelation of Jesus. And I want to ask you, is your sin in your mind greater than Jesus? Are your mistakes in your mind greater than Jesus? Because if your mistakes and your sin in your mind is greater than Jesus, you don't have, Jesus won't cast you out of his presence. You'll remove yourself. And what begins to happen is that they leave because they think that Jesus is the accuser. They think that Jesus is the one that condemns. You ever sat down to pray and, and you close your eyes and the first thing you think God is saying is, man, you did that again. Man, how'd you do that? Man, I want to tell you that's not Jesus. There's only one person in the Bible who's called the accuser, and that's Satan. In Revelation 12, it says that he is called the accuser of the brethren. Satan, he throws condemnation. That's all he has because he doesn't have anything else to hold on to because Jesus is taking care of sin on the cross. So all he can do now is just throw condemnation. But you know what Jesus does? He not only removes the condemnation, the Bible says that Jesus, he prays for us. Jesus is our intercessor. Romans 8 says that Jesus, he, he stands before God. And even when, when Satan's throwing accusations, it says that Jesus is praying for you. I think Jesus' prayers are probably powerful. It even says that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That all of creation is actually praying for you. And you know what they're praying for? 
They're praying that your faith wouldn't fail. They're praying that, you know, there's a story where Peter comes before Jesus and, and Jesus tells him, he says, listen, Peter, Satan has tried to sift you like wheat. Meaning that Satan has come and he's bringing all kinds of accusation. Because right after he leaves, the first thing that happens to Peter is that he goes out, Jesus is being crucified, and people start accusing Peter left and right. He's with Jesus. He's with, And Peter's like, no, I'm not. He says, Satan has tried to sift you like wheat. Satan is coming with all this accusation. But Peter, I'm with you, and I'm praying for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Meaning, Peter, I'm praying that you would not lose sight of the fact that I'm not your accuser. I'm not the one who's going to come against you. I'm the one who's with you. And if I'm with you, who can be against you? If I'm for you, then what can take you down? Nothing can separate you from my love if you recognize that I'm with you. See, when Jesus removes condemnation from our lives, it sets us free to live the Christian life we're meant to live. Man, this life is supposed to be awesome because Jesus is awesome and Jesus lives inside of us. I'm not here to, to make you feel bad and so you go home like, man, I got a lot of stuff I need to work hard on. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is with you and he loves you. I'm here to point you to Jesus because if you recognize that Jesus is with you, you begin to live that life and life to the full that he's called you to live. Man, Jesus is so awesome. He's better than any action film. He's better than anything ever. Like I, Jesus, he's the God who created heavens and earth and he lives inside of you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray. Let's pray together. Can I get someone to come up and play the guitar?